Good morning. Good to see you here this morning. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to Acts chapter number 11. Appreciate Brother James filling in for me last week. Did a great job. I'm going to try to do us all a favor this morning, and I'm going to try my very hardest not to cough. If I do, we will all get a surprise. Much better this morning, other than my voice is a little bit deeper than usual. How many of you had any problem with uh, the time this morning? Anybody? Oh, admit so. My wife is out of town, and so she texted me last night and said, you know, don't forget that you need to change the clock. Okay. So when I went to bed last night, I changed the alarm clock back up an hour. Woke up this morning at 6 o'clock, and I said, I don't have to get up that early. So I went back to sleep. I woke back up, and I looked at the alarm clock, and it said 10 minutes till 8. Oh, my word. We have staff meeting at 8 o'clock. So I rushing around there, and suddenly I, I looked at the, I went into the kitchen and looked at the clock on the stove, and it says it's 10 minutes to 7 o'clock. I discovered that the alarm clock sets itself back an hour. So it was not really as late as I thought it was. <clears throat> so I had plenty of time this morning by the time I got around uh, to everything. Let me just... Uh, say that there are some, I don't know how many of you are even aware that we are in Lent, uh, the season of Lent. Lent is the 40 days leading up to Easter. This is a little devotional that's been put together by all the pastors in the area, by the Ministerial Alliance. There are some of these out on the desk that will take you up through uh, Easter with a devotion for each day except for Sunday. I recommend those to you if you'd like to have them. They're on the table in the foyer. Uh, I wrote four or five of them, and all the other pastors wrote some as well. Acts chapter 11 this morning, I want to bring you a message that I've entitled, I Want a Church Like That. It's not unusual to hear someone say that they want to be part of a local New Testament church. And by that, they probably intend to convey the desire to be part of a vibrant church in which the Bible is preached, that is evangelistic and outreach and doctrinally sound. But if we actually take the time to examine the local churches that are found in the New Testament, they're hardly idyllic. The church at Corinth, for example, had so many problems that the apostle Paul wrote two lengthy letters to try to address those problems. The church had a member that was having an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. They were suing one another in pagan courts. Their worship services were chaotic and at times irreverent. They were divided into factions following various leaders. The seven churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation in the first two chapters were not much different. While some escaped criticism, most were called out for some shortcoming or other. Even the church at Ephesus, which Paul praised in Ephesians chapter 3, just 30 years later is warned that they have lost their first love. However, there is one church 
One church that stands out as a model in the New Testament. It stands out as what a church ought to be. And it is a church that is found at Antioch. And yet the city of Antioch was probably one of the most unlikely places to plant a successful church. Now just consider ancient Antioch with me for a moment. Antioch was considered by many to be the third greatest city in the Roman Empire, just behind Rome and Alexandria. The city of Antioch had a population of perhaps between 500,000 and 800,000. And it was known for its sophistication and culture, but also known for its immorality. It is noteworthy that when God picked a city that would become the birthplace for foreign missions, he picked a cosmopolitan, morally corrupt city like Antioch. Now, if you look at the first 18 verses of chapter number 11, you discover that it is a retelling of the conversion of Cornelius and of the reaction of the church at Jerusalem to the news. Basically, the apostle Peter is called on the carpet by the church because of his association with the Gentiles. Paul is, or rather, Peter gives an admirable defense. And then in verse 18, we read, And when they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Then in verse 19, we begin to hear the story of what happened. What happened after the death of Stephen, when the persecution began and it pushed Christians out of Jerusalem and caused them to begin to carry out the Great Commission, carrying the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. Some of those Christians made their way to Antioch, and it's their story that we'll be looking at this morning. And I want you to notice with me, four factors that made Antioch a great church. First of all, they declared God's word. Verse 19 says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution of the rose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they came to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenist, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, the Greek word for speak here is the word for normal conversation. As the believers were scattered by persecution, it says they spoke the word, and they shared Christ in their ordinary conversations. Antioch was evangelized not by apostles, but rather by average members of the body of Christ who were willing to share their faith. They did this by not preaching as we understand the word, but rather in their everyday contacts, they told others about Christ. They were not behind pulpits preaching to people. They were behind their work counters, in their marketplaces, in their shops, in their social gatherings, talking about Jesus Christ who was the Lord of their lives. 
At first, it seems that as they arrive, those who arrive confined themselves to people like themselves. Perhaps this was because of some cultural blockage or maybe it was a simple language barrier. But others came, it said. Perhaps those who spoke the language were not constrained by cultural inhibitions and they took the gospel to the Gentiles. And this met with resounding success. Second notice, they were enabled by God's power. Verse 21 said, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. You might find it surprising to learn that the phrase, the hand of the Lord was with them, is a very rare phrase in the New Testament. In fact, it is only used by Luke, and it is only used three times in the New Testament. Here it says that the hand of the Lord was upon them, and I think we're to understand this in the sense that God has empowered their preaching or their sharing so that others would be saved. But it can also be understood in the sense that it was because of the hand of God on them that they had the desire to share the gospel with others. In this passage, we see an impressive example of church growth from a very small group of persecuted refugees. The church in Antioch saw large numbers of people come to Christ. In fact, Luke reinforces this by telling us this three times in verse 21 and verse 24 and again in verse 26. As we have seen, the reason of that growth is simple. The hand of the Lord was upon them. But they were so successful that by the time of the Nicene Council in A.D. 325, there are reported to be as many as 200,000 Christians in Antioch, nearly one-fourth of the entire population of the city. However, however, employing the principles that this church followed will not necessarily produce numerical growth. Since God does not always grant numerical growth as a sign of his blessings. We should not mistake or conclude that God is necessarily blessing something because it is growing. We know that the cults grow as well. Not only were they enabled by God's power, but third, they discerned God's grace. The news of what was happening at Antioch got back to the church at Jerusalem. It says in verse 22, the first part, the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. It took the death of Stephen and the ensuing persecution to force the believers out of Jerusalem. But as they are scattered abroad, they began to carry out the Great Commission, and they have amazing results. But there's a problem here. Amazing results. Great numbers of people are being saved, but, but they're Gentiles. They're Gentiles. 
the whole idea that Gentiles could become Christians without first becoming Jews was scandalous to the Jewish Christians. The defining issue was circumcision. Since Christianity originated in the Jewish community and the first Christians were Jews, their natural and yet erroneous conclusion was that the path to becoming a Christian led first of all to becoming a Jew. When the news reached Jerusalem about all these Gentiles being saved, they sent Barnabas to check things out. So notice, first of all, Barnabas is sent to investigate. It says in verse 22, the second part of that verse, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad. And he encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Now, no better person could have been chosen than Barnabas, the encourager. Barnabas was himself originally from Cyprus, and therefore he could identify with these who have gone to share the gospel. I want you to note that it is said of Barnabas that he was a good man. A good man here indicating that he is a man of proven character. It doesn't tell us that he was a talented man, a cultured man, an educated man, an intelligent man, although he was probably all of those things. It tells us that he was a good man, a man of proven character. But he also tells us why he was a good man. It says because he was full of the Holy Spirit. That is, he was controlled by the Holy Spirit. And a man of faith, believing in and reacting to the leading of the Lord. Now, what Barnabas found when he came to Antioch was he witnessed the grace of God. Now, I think we all understand you can't see the grace of God, but you certainly can see the effect of the grace of God. And Barnabas saw the effect of the grace of God in that he saw changed people at Antioch. We are told that when Barnabas saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad. But it is not necessarily a foregone conclusion that Barnabas was going to be glad when he saw this because he is a Jew, but he is not only a Jew, he's a Levite. And so it is not a foregone conclusion that he's going to see this work among the Gentiles as a good thing. But he did. He looked at the grace of God He saw the changed lives, and he was glad. He saw Gentiles who were being converted, who became Christians without first having to become Jews. But true to his name, when he saw that the grace of God was obvious at work in the people, he was glad. Verse 23 said, Barnabas encouraged the new believers he found in Antioch that they would cleave to the Lord That is, that they would keep on remaining loyal, that they would persist in the faith, and certainly persistence is something that would indeed be needed in such a pagan city as Antioch. Secondly, we see Barnabas searches for Paul. 
Barnabas was humble enough that when he saw the situation in Antioch and he saw how much work there was to be accomplished, he knew that he couldn't do it himself. He was humble enough to know when he needed help. It is a wise person who knows his or her limitations and who is willing to ask for help. Verse 25 says, Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. Now it's been eight to ten years since Saul or Paul left Jerusalem to seek safety in Tarsus. We don't know what has happened to Saul during this period. Great many things may have happened to him. Perhaps it is during this period that he experiences what he calls the loss of all things in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. That may be the reference to the, you can imagine that when Paul went back home and his family discovered that he was no longer a good Jew, but now a Christian, that his family would have disinherited him. All those people who were his former friends in Tarsus were no longer his friends. People would not have talked to him. Certainly he would have continued preaching, but perhaps it was during this time that he received those five sets of 39 stripes at the hands of synagogue officials that he talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. But whatever he has experienced, God has been preparing him for just this time. It says of Barnabas, though, that when he goes, he goes to seek or to look for Paul. This phrase is only used one other place by Luke, and that's in Luke chapter 2 and verses 44 and 45, where it talks about that Jesus' parents went back to Jerusalem to look for the 12-year-old Jesus when he was missing. It meant a diligent search. He was not going to give up until he found Paul. He found him. He convinced him to come to Antioch. But this is going to be costly for Barnabas. At first, it was the, you'll notice that it was the team of Barnabas and Saul up through chapter 13 of Acts. Before very long, we discover, though, that it becomes Paul and Barnabas. That Barnabas was willing to give up the limelight. Paul takes over from Barnabas as the recognized leader of the team. It really is a rare individual who, like Barnabas or like John the Baptist, could say about themselves, I must decrease in order that he may increase. People who care more about that the work is done than who gets the credit. And Barnabas and Paul instruct new believers in verse 26. And so it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The initial success in Antioch had been in part because of the church's evangelism. They began to carry out the Great Commission. In Matthew chapter 28 and verses 18 through 20, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Because the English translation of verse 19 begins with the word go, sometimes it's even set apart, capitalized and set apart with a comma. We have a tendency to emphasize that go is what this great commission is talking about. Obviously, going is a part of, but literally, the word is translated even as you go. So the going is assumed. Evangelism is important, but the event, but the emphasis is on the second part of this verse, which is make disciples. Evangelism is just one of the things that the followers of Christ would do. The second part of the Great Commission, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So they are to follow up, they are to instruct, they are to disciple new believers in the fundamentals of the faith. We're not just talking about teaching a set of doctrine, but literally of a way of life. And this phase always takes longer. And according to verse 26, Barnabas and Paul spent an entire year at Antioch carrying out this process. And the end result was that many people were taught, verse 26, they were discipled and grounded in their faith and through the efforts through the efforts of Barnabas and Saul. They were Christians first. Now, the term Christian was not used until it was coined here at Antioch. Prior to this, <clears throat> believers had been called several things. The first, used, first word used to describe them was disciples. They were disciples of their master, disciple merely means learner, one who follows after. Disciples were those who followed after their master, Jesus. That's the name that was used throughout the ministry of Jesus. Afterward, they were called saints. Jesus gave them that word, calling them literally the holy ones or the separated ones. A saint is not someone who's perfect. It is not someone who has a certain number of miracles ascribed to them. A saint is a person, any person, who is committed to and devoted to God, which are all the followers of Jesus. They're also called believers. This doesn't refer not only to an intellectual acceptance of the fact, but to a joyous reception of the gospel. They were also called witnesses because Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you are my witnesses. They will be witnesses of what they had seen and what they had heard of the truth about Jesus to all the rest of the world. It is in Antioch for the first time that believers of Jesus are called Christians. The word simply means Christ ones or Christ people belonging to Christ. Some believe that it was intended as a sneer, an insult. 
But once it was given to those who followed Christ, it was felt to be too appropriate, too precious to ever be allowed to die. Here, for the very first time, disciples, saints, believers, witnesses are called Christians. No longer is the church considered a sect of Judaism. The church is recognized as being distinct from Israel. Dr. Boyce makes a very valuable point, I think, when he wrote, when the text says that the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch, it means that Antioch is the first place that they were given that name. But taking that sentence another way, we might also rightly observe that Christians, first of all, before anything else, were Christians. They were Christians first. It's somewhat amazing to recognize that it is in this city of Antioch where the disciples were first called Christians. Antioch, as we've already mentioned, was noted for its depravity and for its wickedness. But it was in Antioch where it was chosen to be the birthplace of foreign missions. It was here that God's light shines brightest in this dark, dark background. Not only did they discern God's grace, but fourth and finally, they were dedicated to generous giving. And in those days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there, were going, there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. The message of the prophet Agabus it was extraordinarily simple. A famine is coming. We're not told that Agabus told the church at Antioch what they're supposed to do. They could have started stockpiling food. But instead... When the Antioch church heard this message, they responded immediately in verse 29. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. This seems like such a simple thing unless you think about the implications. The prophecy is that a famine is coming on the whole region, which of course means that the famine is coming upon the land and the people at Antioch as well. When the saints at Antioch gave to the saints at Judea, they did so at their own risk. It's one thing to give to others if you know you have plenty yourself. But it's an entirely different thing when you give knowing that you might suffer loss. This offering was not given out of surplus of a few wealthy members. But according to verse 29, each according to his own ability. It was a widespread effort of shared sacrifice. What a standard for today's church. What we do or what we do not do 
with our material possessions is an indicator of the Holy Spirit's presence or absence. The unselfishness of the church at Antioch is remarkably special considering that none of these believers are more than a few years old as believers. The church at Antioch developed a missionary attitude which was resulted in a reversal of the missionary roles. The mother church in Jerusalem had sent the gospel and the daughter church at Antioch had received the word and become believers. The Antioch church in turn soon would be the mother church of the missionary endeavor for the Gentiles. We need to understand that missions is a partnership. A partnership and sometimes that you give and sometimes you receive. As Saul and Barnabas traveled back to Jerusalem with the offering from Antioch, they had their in their hands tangible proof in the form of this offering of the grace of God and the power of the gospel. So the church at Antioch is set before us as an example. It was a church founded by simple believers who knew Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, who knew that God had called every Christian to serve him. They proclaimed the gospel as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And they were generous givers, trusting God to meet their needs. And it says, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and considerable numbers were added to them. I want that for our church. I want to be a part of a church like Antioch, where growth clearly comes from the Lord, and where, like Antioch, we have a worldwide impact for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the testimony and example of these believers in Antioch. We want to be that kind of church. A church that is willing to declare your word. We want to be enabled by your power. We want to see your grace at work in the lives of people around us as they are saved and changed by the gospel. And we want to be able to see our faith put into practice day by day, even in our giving. Lord, I pray for those who are gathered here this morning. There may be one here this morning doesn't know you. They really don't have a personal relationship with you. They have no right to believe that if they should die today, that they would have a place in heaven. And help them to understand that right here, quietness of this place, they can turn to you and repent of their sins and receive forgiveness. Leave this place knowing that they have a place in heaven. Father, there are others here who have been beat down by the world this week. They really feel battered. And what they need more than anything else this morning is comfort. They need to be comforted by you. They need to know and realize that you love them and you care about what they're going through. 
Lord, I pray that they'd be willing to call out to you this morning and receive comfort at your hands. For all of us as believers, we need to be constantly challenged to live out our faith in this world in which we live. If they in Antioch can live for you in the pagan society that they lived in, then we in America today, no matter how pagan it may become, can live out our faith for you. Give us strength, Lord. Forgive us when we fail you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.